0: You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now, for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts.
1: Hi, this is Caitlin Martin.
2: I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin.
1: I'm Rodney Davis.
0: This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Good morning, Caitlin. Good morning, Patrick. And good morning to our listening audience. Uh, I am Mark Alderman, and I am the substitute moderator today for a Martin and Martin edition of the uh, Beltway Briefing. The, the understudies have the stage today. We have been abandoned by the adults uh, in, in the group. They are all off. Uh, doing other things. Very productively doing them, no doubt. And and here we are, guys. Here we are on a a rainy Friday morning, at least in Philadelphia, where we have all pledged not to make this our fifth consecutive (laughs) 2024 podcast about the biden v trump 2.0 never ending general election so let's let's talk about congress and let's talk about what is to me a very interesting dynamic we bipartisanship has broken out in congress governing seems actually on the horizon But it's a little tricky, Caitlin, because we have a bipartisan tax bill from the House on its way to the Senate. We expect to have a bipartisan border bill with Ukraine aid and and more on its way to the House. Each of those bills is a bipartisan product and so far so good, but... Some in the Senate on your side, the Republican side, have declared the tax bill dead on arrival. The Speaker has declared the border bill dead on arrival, although it's yet to even arrive. So talk to us. Where, where are we and where is all this going?
1: Well Mark I think technically we're we're still waiting to see text which we might see this n- tonight or as uh, as late as Sunday on that um border in Ukraine supplemental but on the tax bill I th- you're absolutely right we are seeing um we, we saw some a couple weeks of bipartisan negotiations between Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith and Senate Finance Committee Chairman Ron Wyden. And if you would have told me six months ago that we would have a bipartisan tax package negotiated by, um, by those two members of Congress who could not be further on opposite sides of the political spectrum, I you know, might have said you were smoking something our clients gave you. But- This is a really good bill. It um, restores some of the tax, R&D tax, uh, full R&D business tax deductions that sunsetted or that were pared back during the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, It reverts back. So full R&D expensing, bonus depreciation. And fixes the business and in, um, interest expense. But more importantly, to a lot of Americans, it also significantly increases the child tax credit, which is something that both Democrats and Republicans have been talking about um, needing to do and to improve since, you know, during that was one of the COVID era programs, an increased child tax credit um, that was part of the. Cares Act that that passed to help folks get through um, the COVID nineteen pandemic, and it's been discussed for a long time among both parties. Though, of course, you know, pushed more heavily by by the Democratic Party, um, the need to do more on the child tax credit. So that had a really strong uh, vote out of Ways and Means. I think it was last week, and it passed on suspension on the House floor, which requires two thirds of those voting to vote. So it did get more Democrats than Republicans. But I was really pleased to see, I think there were only 43, maybe, I have to double-check that, Republicans that voted against the bill. But this is bipartisanship at its finest, and it's really fascinating to see, with such slim majorities in the House, how we're running things and getting things done under suspension.
0: And yet, it takes two to tango, as they say, two chambers here. And in the Senate, Patrick, the uh, Chuck Grassley, uh, I think it was just yesterday, said that the tax bill would be a win for President Biden. And now we're back to the general campaign. <laughs> uh, win for President Biden, and he didn't think doing that in an election year was, was of much interest. So where, where, where does that tax bill go in the Senate, do we think?
2: That's a good question. I mean, I think that Look, the, the the one difference between the tax bill and the border bill is, you know, why chairman Wyden was smart and he has a history of doing this. You know, he's good at finding Republicans on the other side of the chamber to work with. He's got a long history doing this. He did it with Paul Ryan back in the day on health uh, healthcare reform Medicare ideas. And so, you know, you're hearing the Senate Republicans kind of complain about this, and it's sort of because they were the ones (laughs) kind of left out of the negotiation. You got, you know, Crapo wants to be chairman next year. He's got all sorts of ideas, I'm sure, of what he wants to do. But Wyden found a willing partner in uh, Chairman Smith, and they were able to come up with something that, you know, as Caitlin said, was able to pass on suspension in the House, which is no easy feat. Now it goes to the Senate. And Wyden's got the gavel. So, you know, whether it can get to 60 on the floor, obviously, if they can get it through committee is the real question. But, you know, this is how the legislative process works. I think it if you bring too many people into the negotiating tent, let's say Wyden and Smith had said, OK, maybe we really should have, you know, House Democratic representation and Senate Republican representation. Well, then it might get harder to get a deal. You got so many cooks in the kitchen. So I think this is a bet by Wyden and Smith, that if we can work together, cut a deal, and we just start pushing this thing forward, that, you know, the momentum will be enough to keep it going. But it's a risk. And uh, Mark, you kind of led, you know, we got two bills that I think both will pass with pretty significant support in their respective houses, whether they can make it through the other house. That's the whole art of legislating. And we'll just have to see. I think it would be easier in a non-presidential year. I think that's what makes it really challenging this year, where you're going to have The nominees of the two major parties that we're not going to talk about today weighing in on each of them.
0: Well, one of them has, of course, already weighed in on the border bill. And we'll be back to Caitlin's tax bill in a minute because I have a prediction. I'm I'm teasing the. I
2: can't wait to hear.
0: I have a prediction on where we go with these two. But let's look, Patrick, for just a minute since you're the uh, Senate side uh, authority here. Tell us though what's happening in the Senate on that border bill before we send it over to the House where the speakers already dug a grave for it.
2: Well, this has been like the longest it feels like in a in a body where negotiating takes forever. This has been like the longest drawn out. It, it's like a term paper that <laughs> you know the deadline's coming, you don't want to finish it every week. It's we'll get it done next week. We'll get it done next week. It sure sounds like they're close. You know, they're they're producing text right now. There's a lot of back and forth about the final details of what's going to be ultimately in it. But th- this is another situation where you've had two earnest negotiators and Senator Lankford and Senator Murphy. They, they've had the blessing of their respective leadership to work on this. And, you know, S- the Senate has a, a history of passing large bipartisan immigration bills. We don't really know how many votes this one's going to get yet. This Senate's a lot different than the one I worked in, where they got, I think, almost 80 votes.
0: But You were there for the bill that actually made it to the House. Yeah, the which included,
2: that bill included some DACA provisions. What's kind of amazing about this, and this is the point that Republican leadership, you hear Mitch McConnell making this argument, and he's right. I, I truly believe he's right. He's saying, the, the extractions that we're getting, that you know, the, the things that we're getting the Democrats to agree to, we would never, ever, ever be able to get them to agree to them under any other circumstances. And this is the best deal we can get, even if Republicans run the table in the election next year and you have President Trump and Republicans leading both houses. They're not going to have 60 votes in the Senate. And after the Democrats get clobbered, if that's the case in November, the last thing they're going to be interested in doing is giving the Republicans a victory on border security, and there's not gonna be enough moderates left. I don't care if the Republicans have 53 Senate seats. All the people they would normally work with will have lost or are gone. So I just think McConnell's point is, everything has aligned for us right now to get the kind of deal that matters to us. It's sort of like in 2011, the same political dynamic uh, McConnell used to get, uh, sequestration and the budget agreement—it's it, recognizing that you have a president of the of one party who is vulnerable and needs to get this issue fixed in order to have you know a good chance of reelection. And and it's a great political opportunity for the Republicans. The House Republicans don't agree with that, and and so we'll see if if this thing's dead on arrival over there. But hopefully, we're gonna. The good news is. Schumer has committed. We're, we're doing this next week. So I'll be on family vacation. You guys can all tell me how it turns out, but I'm excited to see.
1: Well, okay. it's, it's yes. like your point, Patrick, this thing has been hanging out there and it's been really frustrating, which is why I reiterated we have not seen the text of this agreement yet. So it is frustrating to see, you know, conservative media and Fox News and the former president and this House Speaker, you know, coming out in such strong opposition already on something that they don't know the full details of. Senator Lankford has really tried to push back. And again, he's no, you know, moderate rhino member of the Senate. He is a a real conservative, you know, (laughs) U.S. Senator working in earnest to try to accomplish something. And I hear and I understand some of the frustration from the right on the issue that the president does have, with the pen and the phone right now, the ability to reinstate a lot of the um, Trump-era policies that did it lead to increased, um, decreased crossings at the border like Remain in Mexico. Some of the things that Joe Biden rolled back on day one, I hear that. I hear that argument and I understand that. There is a lot of executive power that the president has to stop immigration or to thwart the border crossings today without this bill. However, I also absolutely agree with you, Patrick, and with Leader McConnell, that this is the most concerned, this is all we would have wanted if Donald Trump was president in an immigration bill. So, you know, two things can be true at once. I want to see the text. I hope it comes out this weekend and folks are able to really dig in I think there's been a lot of misinformation out there about this bill. But look, it's good to see Congress working. It's good to see both chambers trying to tackle big issues. I get the politics of it as we get closer to an election year. But this is what, every, this is what these members were elected to do.
2: I agree. And I totally agree with that. And give credit to the members who are trying to make policy, too, and who are who are actually, like Lankford, Todd Young said this this week. I mean, this is the job. Whether you want limited government or more government, your job is to come to Washington and try to legislate in a way that will be, you know, obviously in line with what your constituents want and what's best for the country. But you've got members who they think the whole job is to just go on the news and trash Washington. And then you've got members who are spending late nights away from their family, eating Chinese food in these House and Senate committee rooms, trying to bang out really complicated legislative compromises. That's what the job is. And I I give credit to Democrats and Republicans. You know, I mentioned Wyden earlier. He's always been someone who's been really interested in trying to legislate. And I I just think those members don't get enough credit, but I think it's admirable and it's what the job is supposed to be.
0: Well, agreed. I think, uh, at least on this screen, there are screens in this country where Senator Lankford has become Satan for supporting a very, I believe, uh, moderate, uh, right-leaning border control bill. Totally. Say. So it, it's it's remarkable how the center has has moved so far that Senator Lankford can be uh, the the enemy of the uh, people there. But but Caitlin, in saying you get the politics of all this. Isn't that what's really going on in the House uh, with the border control bill? As you said, they, they don't even know what it says yet. It hasn't even been written, let alone passed. And it's already dead on arrival, not for legislative or substantive reasons, but for political reasons. The former president and his most ardent supporters want a campaign issue is my belief and they are not going to they are not going to pass border control unless they believe it's a political victory and their calculus seems to be at this point that it's bad for Biden if the border's a mess so the hell with the human suffering involved, we're, we're not gonna fix it until uh, after November. Is, is there, there doesn't seem to be more to it than that.
1: Well, look, like I said, there's frustration on the right about the fact that some of these issues could be solved through an executive order and, and from the White House today. However, yes, there's, there's talk about not wanting to give Democrats a win before the election. I've said on this podcast before, the irony is not lost on me that all of a sudden your party, Mark, is is interested in securing the border after a decade plus of, you know, border state, border state governors, you know, ringing the alarm. It took it took. Uh, uh, Governor DeSantis shipping them up to the vineyard and to yeah. Chicago and elsewhere for you know big cities to understand we, the impacts we that have the we have,
0: we have evolved have the reality we on the ground, ground that
1: they've been dealing with. So there is you know President yeah. or former President Trump will say, I can fix this on day one, give me a chance. Don't, you know, don't give Democrats a win before the election. I again would like to see the text of the bill and and I am for let's get good policy done in a bipartisan way. um uh, but but I'm just this is what you're hearing from the right, from Speaker Johnson, from, Republican leadership in the House, just the frustration of the fact that nothing's been done. And now, you know, um, seven months before an election, in their view, this would be handing President Biden a win. I don't necessarily agree with their thinking, but I'm trying to explain it.
2: Senate Republicans who are trying to legislate with the Democrats who control two-thirds of the government right now to get a compromise. And on the other side, you got the House Republicans who are trying to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary. I noticed in the press that Republicans in the House have been echoing Speaker Johnson saying, I don't know why the Senate Republicans are working on this. It's dead on arrival. If that's the standard, I don't know why the House Republicans are impeaching Homeland Security Secretary then, because that's dead on arrival in the Senate. We're just wasting time. So if we're going to waste time on something, I think it should be legislating, which is what the Senate's trying to do. So well, I think we, we all agree. We have a trifecta
0: of uh, impeachments, don't we? We're impeaching the president, we're impeaching the secretary of defense, and we're impeaching the secretary we, of Homeland Security. Three of us might I, I be, be getting, getting impeached. impeached.
2: I, I don't even know. We may be getting impeached from what from the Beltway yeah. briefing.
0: Yeah, well, so so where does all this go? I'm going to go out on a limb and, and offer a prediction. I'll try uh, to be charitable, Caitlin, in in the reasoning for my prediction. Here's where I think we actually are going to end up. I think we'll get a tax bill. I think we'll get a tax bill, and I think we'll get a tax bill because if I I was about to be uncharitable, I'll take out the if. It is clear to me (laughs) that Republicans of all types and stripes at least care about legislating lower taxes. That is something that may be the only thing that is still a core principle that unites this Republican Party. And I think they want it. And I think that Senator Grassley's comments yesterday notwithstanding, I think we will see a tax bill passed by the Senate. It may have to go back to conference and that gets tricky, I guess, with suspension, but it'll get it'll end up on the president's desk this spring and he'll sign it. And and I think we will see actual bipartisan governing because everybody wants something and they're willing to compromise to get it. On the other hand, on the other hand, Republicans, in my humble opinion, Caitlin, aren't all that interested in actually cleaning up the border. They never have. It, it is a political issue. It is rhetorical, and they believe advantageous may be right with that calculus. And I don't see this House working hard. It, it will be hard work to get uh, an agreement on a border bill. I don't see that hard work getting done because I don't think it is – a mission of the Republican Party to actually fix the border. I think it's a mission to have it as a club to be the president with. And that brings us back to November, which we swore to avoid here. But I'm I'm out on that limb. Tax bill, thumbs up, uh, border bill. And, and unfortunately, with the border bill, Ukraine aid, which is a whole different dimension of this mess.
1: Well, it sounds like that might be a split off, but let me say, agree with your first prediction on the legislative um, tax bill. Expe- I think it'll, I'm with you, Mark, I think it'll pass. I think border bill will probably fall apart. Yeah,
0: Dis- wow. Caitlin pa- 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 and I agreeing. I, I, is there a way to underline this? All right. Well, um, here we go. I-
1: Completely disagree with sure, you. I agree. Tax, with you. Tax, your, your sweeping generalization that Republicans <laughs> don't want to solve the border crisis. I think if Republicans saw we had, a White House and a Department of Homeland Security and a Secretary of Homeland Security that was serious about using every tool that they have available in the toolbox to solve the issue, then you would see more legislation needed. But I think Again, their frustration and not seeing the White House to use all the tools in their toolbox now, not seeing to your point about um, them working in the House to impeach Secretary Mayorkas. How can he, how can he sit there and, and say he's done everything he can do to solve the border crisis when the President of the United States is saying I, this is a massive problem? I get it. So I, I think you would see more if. Republicans felt like the White House and Department of Homeland Security was doing everything that they all the tools that they have already without legislation to solve the issue.
0: Patrick, where where is this all going? Caitlin and I uh, vote taxes up, uh, border down.
2: I think taxes, you got to look at who's saying what. And if the only people Trump. I I don't know if Trump said anything about the tax bill. He's certainly not talking about it every day, not like the border. If the only people saying it's not going to happen are a couple cranky old Republican senators, I would bet on it happening. Like Grassley Grassley and Crapo are like, you know, they're like the guys who are playing cards and having soup for lunch at 1030 in the morning. They're not... Not stopping this thing. <laughs> it's so I'm, thinking a,
0: I'm thinking of a whole <laughs> of thing oh. done
2: here. <laughs> yeah, the 10 a.m. lunch, the yeah, 4:30 dinner. These, we're going to be asleep when this thing passes. We're going to be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, what no, so but... what's the standard 10 a.m. Because my college roommate and I are having an 11:30 lunch. Is that which side that's of the acceptable. line? Are I like.
2: <laughs> I like the 11:30. You miss the noon rush, so that that that's acceptable. Yeah. Um, I think it passes. I, yeah. I mean, listen, I think the suspension, I think showing that strength in the House was good. Mark, you're right on taxes. I I, the Republican Party view on just business in general has changed. And you saw Matt Gates and some other conservatives complaining that this thing is corporate welfare. But I don't think that there are still enough Republicans who understand, you know, what good tax policy looks like. And there was there was a coalition of the willing that got this thing done moderates in both parties were supportive. Really, the only kind of noisy people were far left and far right, and there wasn't enough of them. So I, I think that that dynamic will play on the Senate, too, and I would bet there's a pretty good chance of of it getting done. And on the border, yeah, I'm just not optimistic. I think, you know, uh, I I just, I think it's too heavy a lift. I think if there was a different Republican presidential nominee and a different dynamic, maybe there would be a chance to get it done. And maybe McConnell's political view of this is the best deal we'll ever get the Democrats to agree to would would win the day. But I I just don't I don't see that playing out this time. I am curious how they get the Ukraine funding done if the whole thing falls apart. I I, I just think, you know, it's certainly not going to be a standalone bill. I, I just I don't know. I'll be curious to see what dynamic gets the foreign aid piece done, because I think that's As we all know, the world kind of depends on it. You listen to the sirens coming out of Europe, and I mean, we just—it's terrifying to think of after all this Ukraine falling uh, to the to the Russians. So you
0: know, we'll have to. How did we get here? (laughs) That is the general question all day, every day. But Caitlin, how did we get to a place where the Republican Party? may be a majority uh, or, or at least a minority that may be able to frustrate Ukraine aid, where the Republican Party that used to be the stronger of the two on anti-Russian, anti-then-Soviet Union policy uh, is is in a place where it is talking about killing something that's bad for Putin and doing something that's good for him. What is that all about?
1: We've talked about it a little bit on this podcast before. I think, yes, there's a big isolationist, populist wing that seems to be growing within the Republican Party. We're certainly far from the days of neoconservative neoconservatism of, of, the, of the Bush era and others. Um, it's frustrating because to me, and, and this is what I would say to friends that I have that might be on the further right and, and have gotten into conversations about this, it is America first policy to support Ukraine, to ensure that proxy nations in Europe stay free and stay democratic. And it. $1 invested in Ukraine is $10 invested in American security and wars that we don't have to fight and we don't have to commit our men and women to the front lines. So I, I don't get it. It's confounding to me. I am of the mindset that we need to promote democracy and we need to stand up to authoritative you know, dictators who are anti-democratic and we need to pass Ukraine aid and period end of discussion. Well,
0: well
2: answer question, Mark. Uh, I'll answer the question. I know we're not supposed to talk about it, but it's Trump. Trump changed the party uh, in, in a way that Mark and I both had, you know, have a shared affinity and experience having worked for President Obama. President Obama didn't change the Democratic Party from an ideological perspective, you know, on issues where he maybe had a little bit of a different view. He didn't fundamentally bring the party with him on you know he had some more moderate views on education he didn't change sort of how democrats view issues trump changed the republican part and and not just on one issue on foreign policy on the sort of business generally he changed it on trade i mean all of the messaging now the mainstream messaging out of the party is entirely different but everyone talks about like the era of reagan it's different from the era of bush from i mean 10 15 years ago it changed so quickly, and it's been really hard to keep up. Towner, if he was on, I think would talk about this. Just the Republican Party he grew up working for in Capitol Hill. The messaging has changed so much on a lot of issues, and and it makes Trump an historically significant figure beyond, beyond all the other stuff he'll be remembered for, which I don't think will be very positive. But he brought the party to him in a way that. I don't know Mark you're you have such a good sense of history I'm trying to think of the last president that did that Clinton brought the Democratic party along to win yeah. uh but I don't think he changed the party I think no, the party I- wanted to to be more progressive but they recognize they would be getting their butts kicked but is there anyone you think that has done this like he has
0: not since lbj we're going yeah. back to my youth a little bit before the martin and martin time <laughs> but <laughs> so, yeah lbj i think did in that in that way but what happened with him and and it's an observation. We're not going down the Trump rabbit hole, but I right. will observe the following, because it's very true of of the LBJ uh, precedent. LBJ pivoted the party, changed its view towards especially the social agenda, but but there had been a trend line that he tapped into and and accelerated. And I think the same thing has to be true of Trump. There was a predisposition on the Republican side among some significant number to the to Trump's view of America first. I can't resist Caitlin saying that I'm not sure Trump actually has a view on any of this beyond what he thinks is to his political advantage. But but yes, the party has has moved from the neoconservatism and and prior even the re especially the Reaganism, and it it is frustrating for all the reasons that that Caitlin cited. I want to begin. We all know on this podcast that the Speaker of the House need not be a member of the House, so I am nominating Caitlin. To replace the oh. to replace Speaker Johnson when he falls, which he will, which he will. Well,
1: that's high praise nice for me, Mark.
0: I, I think that's your next gig, Caitlin. We would hate to see you go, I'm but sure we I would last very long. We well until November anyway. <laughs> so I'm I'm hoping you get a six month tenure with the speaker's gavel. And having pivoted to you, I'm going to make a, a lawyerly distinction here. We are not doing Trump v Biden Biden v Trump 2.0 general election we we actually had what i am proud to say was a very informed and and semi intelligent discussion of of legislating of all
2: Palings things are going to be very surprised
0: it, yeah i think this the the market is telling us something here i think you, you get if you change it up from the moderator, who's very busy right now, very busy on behalf of the republic, we we won't throw him all the way under that bus. And and Rodney uh, Towner's a, a good family man. We hope his his kids feeling better. I, Rodney's just somewhere in the air, as far as I know. But but Caitlin, what would a Beltway briefing 2024 be? without an update on the Haley Death Watch, the Haley campaign, obviously not the governor herself, the uh, ambassador herself. But but give us the latest on the Haley for President campaign before we sign off today.
1: Well, she is hanging in there. Um, she's been making the rounds this week. She is all eyes on South Carolina, which I think is two weeks away. Where are we on the map? Couple weeks away. She is winning in political donations from the DC lobbyist set. I uh, that that tells you everything you need to Our know. Republican Probably, right. Probably not helpful. She's still out there. Look, she's got a good message. I'm 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 proud she's still out there. We need a voice that is in this race that is not Donald Trump for, in my view, the future of the Republican Party. I think she's got a big future ahead of her. I will also note that Governor DeSantis is back down in Florida. Making moves, you know, be back to being, I think, one of the greatest governors in the in the the nation right now. And he's yep, settled uh, back in nicely. Um, look, agree, I think both,
0: agree to disagree. Just want to get that on <laughs> I the record. think They
1: both <laughs> have roles to play in the future of this party post-Trump. Uh, and I'm glad to see that Nikki is is still hanging in there. Um, that's no, I, that's what I've got, Mark.
2: Yeah, one forward-looking thing, Mark, that I've mentioned on a couple calls this week. And this can be picked apart. It is not a great apples to apples based on the, the individual people that I'm going to compare. But just situationally, 1952 and 1956, you had Eisenhower-Stevenson. You had back-to-back elections with the same two candidates. And then in 1960, you had a real generational shift and you had two much younger candidates running to be president. This is this is about where my example stops, because uh, Biden and Trump are no Eisenhower, uh, and, and as an Illinoisan, I love Adlai Stevenson. But I will just say, I think 2028 is going to be that kind of shift, where we're going to have two next-generation nominees. Whether they'll resemble Kennedy and Nixon, I have no idea. But I just think from a uh, kind of how these things are cyclical in terms of the age and generation of the candidates i think that looks and seems a little bit like that transition but i'd love your your thoughts on that
0: i want to think about that actually is is the answer the next podcast sure. yeah look it's it, it, let's do the obvious uh the candidates for president in 2028 presupposing that we still have a republic in 2028 in which to conduct this election, it is a certainty that they will be younger than in 2024 because the having two candidates older than these two is just an actuarial impossibility. There, there aren't enough. There aren't enough It's highly people. unlikely
2: there'll be baby boomers. I, I don't yeah. see of the crop of people that we're talking about on either side. I don't, I don't think we're going to have another baby boomer nominee in either party.
0: Well, you're going to, let's just think about this for a quick second, then we'll uh, unburden our audience and, and let everybody go. But You did have in 1960 on the Republican side, the uh, sitting vice president, who was much younger, and it's the generational change. But you could in 2028, imagine this is wherever Howard is, his head's on fire when I say, you could imagine Vice President Harris as the younger nominee of the Democratic uh, Party. And and let's, my, my uh, hope and prayer for the country is that we safely get through the intervening five years and, and end up uh, with that 2028 cycle.
2: I'm scared, but, viewers. Don't worry. We're not going to have a millennial president. That's not coming anytime soon. <laughs> but I, I do think Gen X is going to get their moment in the next election.
0: Op- optimistic. I, I'm, all, I'm all for it. But for it. It's a wrap. That's a wrap. A, a substantive discussion with a, uh, a dose of uh, Trump v. Biden uh, couldn't couldn't resist. But Patrick, Caitlin, thank you for a, a great podcast. And uh, we will be back with, I am sure, a, an expanded cast of characters.